0: Hi, this is Zoe Routh. I'm your host at the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast, where we focus on the people stuff in leadership. It's something that I've been obsessed with and passionate about ever since I was 17, working at summer camp with a bunch of really interesting young people. My career from then has been always about working with different types of people in different scenarios, trying to figure out what makes them work, what makes them tick. And I'm always fascinated by other experts who bring something new to the table. My guest today is Stephen Frost. He is an international diversity and inclusion expert. So he is all about diverse people, exploring the diversity of perspective, of mental ability, of mental paradigms as well as the other aspects of diversity like sexual preference, gender identity, race, you name it. He is immersed in that world and he's got some really interesting accolades to his name. He was the head of diversity and inclusion for KPMG and the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympics. So he's been an advisor to the British government and the White House on issues of diversity and inclusion. Now, this is highly topical. As I record this, we are in the middle of protests around Black Lives Matter, and it is, it is something significant that we as cultures around the world need to address. How do we become more human and embrace all of humanity? And this conversation with Stephen goes deep. And I love where it goes in terms of some practical steps that we can take as individuals to increase our capacity to recognize bias, to minimize it, and to be better leaders, to make better decisions because we've got more diverse minds at the table contributing to the issue at hand. So let's get into it. Stephen, welcome to the show. So grateful and happy to have you here all the way from Greenwich, London. Pleasure to be here.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Well, you've had a really spectacular and interesting career. I'm wondering how you actually got started in the diversity and inclusion space. What kicked all that off? I think
1: a couple of things. In terms of diversity, I suppose, one's own story, right? One's own um, experiences. So growing up as a, a gay guy, in a very rural North Yorkshire kind of conservative environment was, was one. Uh, having a disabled sister, um, coming from a working class background and then, you know, getting into Oxford and meeting the British establishment full on. Um, I think all of these things shape you and make you very aware of your identity in relation to others and difference and so forth. And, and also quite frankly, some of the injustices that you see around you amongst other people too. So I think um, one is definitely personal that, that, was a, was a driver. But I think more so really was, was increasingly professional, And that as you get into your career and you get more experience under your belt and you see decisions being made and strategies being deployed and so forth, you kind of realise, I guess part of growing up, that things aren't always what they seem and things aren't always meritocratic and the decisions aren't always just or right or efficient or fair. And actually the professional or intellectual, academic or commercial interest I have in diversity inclusion has come from the fact that we can do stuff better, right? We can make our organisations more meritocratic. We can make our organisations more inclusive. We can have happier workforces. We can quite frankly make more money. We can be more successful. We can do all these things. And what's getting in the way is vested interests and a lack of appreciation of diversity and inclusion. And so I think, in summary, the personal and the professional kind of combine to realize that you know actually diversity inclusion offers us quite a lot. It's really quite profound and more than people realize. And it's something that's really free, an um, in infinite supply, and completely within our own control if you want to take advantage of
0: it. So there's a couple of things I want to just dive into a little bit. You know, being gay in Yorkshire. I have visions of this of being out in the country and you're the only gay in the village and ostracized for that. Or were you like hidden away in your own self and and not out in the community? What was were you ostracized? Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, I don't know whether you've seen the film uh, Billy Elliot. Um, yes, it's kind of like a, a little boy who's into ballet and has to keep it a secret, kind of growing up. And it's it's uncanny parallel. My my dad was a footballer and um, you know I did ballet which was a huge disappointment to him I think but I I kind of was in the closet until I came out at university so that's the kind of the quick answer but I I suppose you know there were things which looking back now you realise well you know people who were emotionally intelligent would pick up on stuff and ask you questions and so forth but no I was completely in the closet and my my life plan until university was that I just had to do what everyone else did which was Find someone of the opposite sex, get married, settle down, have kids, live
0: a normal life. And you didn't do that because you got to university and changed your perspective on things. I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's an immense privilege to to go to university and to to get exposed to so much difference, really. And I think for me, you know, I had a, a wonderful um, time there, and um, I remember like vividly. Uh, key moments like when a good friend of mine kind of came out and two weeks later I realized well what was I doing you know, life's short and um, I followed suit and I was very lucky I suppose with friends and people around me that it was accepting so being in the sports team at Oxford and the rowing team and stuff and being worried but actually the sports president making it clear that you know look I'm part of the team and Anyone who's got a problem with that is not on the team. And so that's incredibly lucky and affirming and, and so forth to so have that environment within which to find yourself and come out is a um, real privilege.
0: Yeah. It doesn't happen like that for, for many. That's for sure. You mentioned also the establishment, the English establishment. And I have um, I have an English friend who's always talking about class in the UK. And I'm English born myself, but I left when I was only three and grew up in Canada and ended up in Australia. So I haven't been immersed into the establishment, the UK class system. How strong is it still in community over there?
1: Well, obviously it depends who you ask, but I mean, from my point of view, it's pervasive. And, and in a sense, I've seen both sides, right? Because I've kind of grown up poor, but then having gone to Oxford and been successful in life and mixed with the the hoi polloi, I've seen it from the other side too. So I think... Um, I would say it's still pervasive. And a couple of examples of that would be one my own experience at Oxford when a guy I remember asked me in my first day at university, you know, where are you from? And I said, Yorkshire. And he said, oh God, that's miles away and walked off. You know, just wasn't worth talking to. And this kind of faux politeness of how are you, where are you from? I mean, it's sizing you up, you know, yeah. looking at what people are talking to. But other examples, I think, would be just when you get into your career and you realise actually the pervasive nature of the, the old boy network or the, the systems at play versus where people have come from. I remember vividly, and I put it in my first book actually, that when um, my mom uh, came over to visit me um, in the States, uh, when I was finished my postgrad and, and was working in the US, um, I got on a flight over and very kindly the airline upgraded her to business class. And I remember she went to the... Uh, Lounge in business lounge, and she asked where she had to pay for her food. You know that legacy of class doesn't leave you. You know it's it's part of who you are. That's that's something I by pervasive as well, both from from both sides really. And you know you need to look in the UK at the moment at social mobility, and you can see that there's still a heck of a long way to go, and in some cases we're going backwards.
0: I think these are really fabulous examples of, as you say, how it feels like they're hardwired into us some of these perspective, some of these ways of seeing and being in the world until we start to challenge them, which is a lot of your work around challenging the patterns and associations that we've become accustomed to that are defaults, which are essentially our biases. I don't think we have to stay stuck in these patterns. And certainly you're an example of someone who's broken out of these patterns and shaken them up and is shining a light on some of these patterns. How do then we address bias? So, you've written that there are seven types of bias, and how easy is it to spot and dismantle them?
1: Um, it varies. So, I think uh, some of them are very easy, right? But I think we can either look at this from the perspective of the individual or from the system, right? Yeah. From the individual, I mean, you or I might be, or like to think we are, very self aware, and therefore we can kind of spot our own biases quite easily. And some of the most obvious ones are like confirmation bias. Ah, oh, right, you say something which I agree with, of course I was right. Or affinity bias, you know, we, we, we stay with who we know. And we don't really reach out to strangers. But you could look at it from the perspective of strategy overall. And, you know, there are whole systems which are biased like, for example, you know, racial justice in the you know, criminal justice system in the United States right? or um, you know, racial profiling or the gender dynamics of car production or um, the gender or racial aspects of
0: vaccine trials. And this is where what? the whole... Oh, hey, hang on, That's like, you just spattered it off. Four really interesting things. <laughs> I want to unpack each one of them or, or a couple of them anyway. So starting with the first one, I was still s- sitting on systems are biased. Like um, racial discrimination in the justice system. How does a system become biased and how can we tell that a system is biased? So
1: let's take, I mean, an example. Let's take, you know, very topical, like right? policing in the United States. There is an overwhelming bias against African American men. So African American men are way more likely to be stopped and searched, way more likely to be pulled over, way more likely to be shot. You know, and one in three uh, American black men are going to basically encounter the cops in a negative way at some point, right? Which is just way more than if you're white. And other variables like where you are, or um, you know, IQ or whatever. are just at the site. It's basically comes down to race as an isolated variable. So we can look at it in terms of the system being. Biased in terms of if you are a black man in the USA, you're way more likely to be stopped by the cops, you're way more likely to lose your life to the police, you're way more likely to go to jail for no other reason than the fact that you're black. And how do we identify that? Well, if you look at, for example, the, the data, right? We, we can look at the data of all of these steps and, and, and see quite clearly that that's the pattern, that's the case. But if you look, for example, at, at car production, right? We know from studies done at Stanford and Georgia Tech that Women are more likely to sustain serious injury in a head-on car crash and more likely to die. And that's because cars are largely designed by men for men, using male bodies to crash test dummies. And we don't consider really gender differences in the design of cars.
0: It's actually, it shows up in in funny other places too, like funny, I don't know, funny ha-ha. Two examples of that were during the pandemic here in the first wave of lockdowns here in Australia, The announcement was, okay, hairdressers can stay open, but just for 30 minutes. And all the women I knew, including me, went, whatever, like as if. If you go to the hairdressers, it's a two and a half hour, three hour plus ordeal. You don't get anything done in half an hour. And it was a classic example of clearly there were no women on the panel that decided that hairdressers could stay open because it was an essential necessity for 30 minutes. What the... (laughs) So there was that example. And there was another internet meme. Someone was advertising pool floats. I'm not sure if you saw this one. So these big, giant pool floats, you could hop on, like, um, they're full-bodied size. But they were shaped, they were concave as if they had a waist to them. And the one that they were profiling was white. And it looks exactly like a sanitary pad, like a feminine hygiene sanitary pad. And again, it was like, clearly no one had any women on the design and uh, production of this ad campaign because who wants to go floating in a pool on a giant maxi pad? No thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But that's really, that's interesting. So about the car production piece and that it's killing more women as a result. Well, you've given two examples now, the justice system in the US and a car production system, which causes more deaths in one particular area of the population. So if we unpick a little bit, what's happening to Black American men in the justice system in the US, how does it get to be this way? How is it that they get targeted? Like, what is the narrative that generates this bias? That's the first part of the question. And is there any hope? Can we unwind it?
1: There is hope. There's always hope, right? But it's hard and requires sustained effort. I
0: think what we're talking
1: about here is confirmation bias, that Let's say that, you know, you or I have a bad experience with somebody of a particular genre. Maybe it's their gender, maybe it's their ethnicity, maybe it's their accent, maybe it's their nationality. You know, flipping Aussies, flipping Kiwis, you know, whatever it might be, right? Some, some, And then it happens again. Or then actually something else happens, but we focus on actually what we've already got in our mind. You know, our mind's sticky, right? Our mind has, you know, it's not our eyes that are seeing, it's our mind that's processing based on information before. And it's cumulative. So if you have wanting to at least become cumulative, you end up basically then framing your responses, often unconsciously, when you think you're being objective. But of course you're not, because your mind's basing it on the recall from all the stuff that's already processed in the past. So you're basically forming patterns in your mind that are based on stereotype. And and stereotype forms a function, right, because it's a cognitive shortcut. And without cognitive shortcuts, we wouldn't get through the day. Right? You have to make some assumptions and some shortcuts just to kind of make decisions and you know, get through the day. But if you make them on the wrong things, they can be pretty significant. And I would argue that we're making those on the wrong things, like in terms of criminal justice and car design and so forth. And so that's how it comes to be. But can we do anything about it? Yes, we can. So I think there's really the kind of intrinsic and the extrinsic or what we can do personally and what we can do with the system. And what we can do personally, of course, is be self-aware. There's a really nice little ladder of conscious competence that developed by Noel Birch in 1970, which takes us through four stages of self-awareness from unconscious incompetence. You know, I don't even know I'm biased. I think that I treat everyone the same. Right? To conscious incompetence. Oh, whoops, you know, I said a few sexist things there to conscious competence, you know, I'm practising stuff. I'm, I'm stopping saying, hey, guys, or, you know, uh, I'm stopping saying, you know, I'm trying to actually be more inclusive, to, you know, unconscious competence, where it becomes habitual. And you can kind of do that on small things in about three months. You can go on that journey in three months to kind of practice habits, rather than like stopping smoking or, you know, dieting or some other kind of habit change. But the other kind of way you do it, really, is by influencing the system. And that's really through nudges and behavioural economics. So it's by looking at a system, let's say recruitment, and then thinking about the areas of bias. Let's say one-on-one interviews, and they're all interviewed by um, an exuberant um, you know, extrovert white guy who likes golf and beer, right? And if you know, you're know you not white and you don't like golf and beer, you're probably going to be a disadvantage right, compared to others that might do. Exaggerate for the purpose of, a, of effect, right? But the point being there, you could start to debias things by, for example, having multiple interviewers that were diverse. And even better, having multiple candidates that are diverse. Because we know that when you look at things in groups, you are more likely to choose diversity and more likely to calibrate your decision-making. So there's things we can do like that, which don't rely on training, but there can be nudges that get a different effect. One of the best examples I can share with you on that kind of group selection idea is, for example, in the UK at Christmas time, we have selection boxes where right? you get lots of different chocolates put together in a, in, a, in a selection. And as a tight Yorkshireman, I've never understood why you would pay more money for less chocolate. But the idea <laughs> is, of
0: course, it's, it's, it's joy of choice. Right? It's good to know your prejudices against chocolate. <laughs> That's right, you know,
1: I'm, I'm human. Uh, so, so we package it like that. And of course, we pay more for variety and choice, and we actually prefer that, rather than getting a discount for the same chocolate bar and a family pack, right? And similarly if we present candidates like that, or choices like that, we can actually improve our decision making, improve the accuracy and the efficacy of decisions, but also actually um, get more diversity. That's what we did at the London Olympics, and it's what I encourage lots of organisations to do to improve the the, uh, meritocracy and the diversity of their recruitment programmes. So anyway, long answer that, yes, we can do stuff uh, intrinsically and extrinsically.
0: Let me just check that I got the metaphor right. So to help nudge a system into less bias when it comes to whether it's confirmation bias or affinity bias, then you want more chocolate in the box of chocolates than less. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that the correct analogy?
1: Yeah, yeah. More chocolate is, is always good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Awesome. Um, I want to come back to a couple of things. We almost missed it. Gender bias on vaccine. You started telling me about that, uh, and I interrupted you to rewind back to the, the racial prejudice in the police system. So what's going on with gender bias in vaccine development?
1: Well, there's a really interesting study by the Center for Cardiovascular Diseases, which looked at heart failure survival rates amongst men and amongst women. And historically, women have actually had worse survival rates from heart conditions than men have. And when you look back at how we develop drugs for heart failure, um, they're overwhelmingly tested on men. So we basically test a lot of our drugs on male patients in the clinical trials. We produce drugs and then we administer them to men and women. But actually, women have a very different physiology. They have very different symptoms as well. And we now know that actually you need to administer a different dose, a different prescription even to women compared to men to have equitable survival rates. Because we didn't do it in the design phase, we haven't didn't know that in the in the actual phase. So you could look at the same thing for diabetes and, and black and white people. You could look at the same for you know different diseases. If you don't incorporate difference in the design process, you won't produce drugs that actually can help everyone survive an equal rate.
0: So I'm interested in that because, you know, if more chocolate in the box is better when it comes to the design principles, Let's say if it's for a vaccine or for it's a, a drug for heart conditions, where do you draw the line? Is it because humans are massively diverse? Is it about tall people versus short people and black versus white versus brown versus whatever skin color, ethnic background? Is it size? Is it like you do you just put it all on the table and then do you prioritize how you you judge against that, or do you just try and incorporate all that difference in?
1: I mean, you, you raise a really great challenge, which is, um, you know, where does this end, right? Because ultimately diversity is infinite, right? We put people in groups because that kind of helps our mind categorise information. And it also is the law. You know, we have laws according to certain discriminations and so forth. But you're right, diversity is infinite. So I would say the answer to your question depends on what problem is we're trying to solve. You know, if we're trying to solve, or at least reduce uh, death from heart failure and we know there's a massive gender difference in survival rates, then let's check whether we've got men and women in the trials, right? And what I mean, do you that's know? an obvious we, one. We don't have any women in the trials. If mm-hmm. you look at, you know, um, diabetes, we know for example that in one type of diabetes, there's a way more deaths from African American folks, which is linked to poverty and diet and so forth. We know actually in other type of diabetes, uh, actually there's more white people uh, dying. So actually we can look at, you know, what is the problem we're trying to solve and then work backwards and say, well, what is there for the design principles we need? And, and that's how I go about it, right? Because clearly, you know, it, it will be impractical to try and catch every variable in an experiment. I mean, you'd go mad, you couldn't do it. But there's clearly issues of justice and efficacy and, quite frankly, marketing, which mean that we should kind of work backwards.
0: Okay, thank you, that was really helpful. So we've talked about confirmation bias and affinity bias as two of the seven. What are the other five? And are they as easy to fix, easy quotation marks, as the other ones with a nudge? I mean, there's, there's all
1: kinds. I mean, there's actually, I mean, seven kind of like my nice way of trying to put it to people, but there's hundreds of kinds mm. of bias, right? Like literally hundreds. And again, rather like your question on diversity, where does it end? Well, you go on and on and on. I think it comes down to rather than trying to list all the biases and how can I solve them all, just being self aware and what is it you're trying to do, right? If you're trying to treat people fairly or make a fair pay award or allocate work fairly or chair a meeting and everyone takes part, what is it you're trying to do and work back from there? But I mean, another couple of ones that might be of interest would be, you know, framing bias, which I think is super interesting, which is where, you know, rather than say, how are you? you know, which is an open-ended question, I'd say, you okay? So the you may not say, yes, I'm okay, right? <laughs> That's how. I, so we can frame things in certain ways, which don't actually give us the data we need to figure out the answer. We kind of get the information we want to hear.
0: They're kind of like leading questions, like you would do in a, in a courtroom, Yeah, You're leading the witness.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's, there's all those kinds of biases, you see. And you know they're fascinating right because it's, it's just like wow okay but i think it all comes back to self-awareness and just being aware of the fact that we as human beings are just fundamentally flawed creatures right and that's beautiful but also problematic and you know how can we be self aware of the fact that our norm is not the norm you know and our perspective is not the perspective and You know, no one has ever been accused of over-communicating, right? You you can never get enough feedback to form a different opinion. I run a diversity inclusion consulting company, right? You know, you'd think we were pretty good at diversity inclusion. And I think we've got a lot of experience and expertise. But I'm full of bias. And so it's only by actually getting constant feedback that I can keep tweaking and keep improving.
0: So tell me a little bit about this, because a lot of leaders ask me that. So we know that self-awareness is really important. How do we develop it? And you've you've tipped off on one of the ways that is to get feedback. How else do you recommend developing self-awareness?
1: I think by um, exposing yourself to difference. So what's interesting is is how, again, we kind of navigate the world as humans. Um, We have things called in-groups and outgroups, so if I asked you to tell me you know your closest friends, closest colleagues, partner partners, neighbors, i get a picture of like you know a snapshot of your, your your life your kind of close confidants, your kind of in-group and then I could say to you, well, how diverse is that and you know you might say, well actually Steve you know it's, it's like the United Nations actually I've got you know more of it. and I'd be like, well congratulations you know run for office um, but it might be that if you're like the majority of the population, you're in the middle of the bell curve, right? And your in-group is pretty homogenous, pretty much like you. And that's life. It's nothing to be, it's not right or wrong or good or bad, right? I'm not judging this. I'm just framing it to say, well, okay, you know, if you have an homogeneous in-group, how much do you really know about policing in the US if you're a police commissioner and most of the victims are black? Or if you're a car designer and all your mates are men and actually women are dying more in cars. Or or you're a medical director and, you know, all your friends are white then the vaccine is disproportionately ineffective. So you see where this goes. So I think in and out groups are really interesting. And then it's interesting because it's self-awareness. You're like, oh, wow, actually, God, all my friends are male. Oh, my God, all my friends drink. Oh, my God, all my friends have an appalling sense of humour. You know, oh my God, you know, all my friends are like you know, And then you think, oh, wow, it's no wonder, right? Um, and what do we do? You have a bad day at work, so you go and console yourself with those friends and they just shower you with confirmation bias, right? It's not you, it's them, right? You're great, you're fine. They don't see it, they're stupid, you know? And so actually being aware you're in-group, thinking, okay, look, as a human being, I need this love and confidence and security. Of course you do but at work or in professional life, it can be incredibly seductive and incredibly problematic because actually, you know, it's almost the opposite of what you need, where you need challenge and calibration and so forth. So I think in groups and out groups, as well as getting feedback is another way of developing self-awareness and thinking you know, I might need to kind of check who I'm mentoring or sponsoring or who I'm allocating work to or who I'm actually recruiting or promoting or, you know, helping out. Who do I actually call? Who do I ask advice from? Who do I consult?
0: I love the in-group, out-group thing. And to lean into difference is a really wonderful tactic strategy. I've noticed how I've been trying to work on that through social media posts. It's like, How do you curate your social media posts? Though, I mean, Facebook's doing its own little logarithm thing. But seeking out different points of view on, let's say, politics. So people whose values are clearly different to mine and genuinely trying to figure out how is it so? How do they come to develop this perspective? How are they thinking about this situation? Why does it feel right to them? And I think that's a really powerful exercise in trying to put down your own biases and to pick up somebody else's point of view, not necessarily to agree with it, but to get an understanding of how those points of view evolve and how it contributes to a system, whether it's biased or not. and It also helps develop compassion also, because some points of view are incredibly limiting and dangerous and, um, and negative. But, you know, there you go. I've got some biases <laughs> around my own, my own, I guess, implied in that statement is that my, my point of view is more embracing and more collaborative and more compassionate. And so it's a little bit of judgment in there. But I think that's also another way to, is to seek out other people's opinion and be curious about it. And it's hard to do because you just want to sometimes, especially if it's poking your values, to argue the point that they're wrong, you're right. So how do you recommend people deal with that? If you get your buttons pushed and you're like, I know I'm right around this. Because let's say, for example, you know, diversity inclusion is super important and it's got all these evidence that it's right, that it's got positive benefits for an organization in so many different areas. And then somebody says, argues against that. How do you go about dealing with that?
1: Uh, run. No, you don't um, <laughs> You don't. You, you, I think a useful response would be to think about system one and system two thinking. So, you know, system one is our thinking fast, right? You know, when um, we have an instinctive reaction, a gut reaction, which comes from the amygdala. And that's particularly the case when we're stressed or tired or low blood sugar levels. But actually, system two thinking is often preferable. That comes from the neofrontal cortex, the front of our brain. It's, it's more reasoned. It's more logical. It's more thought-through. And when you're triggered by something, when, you know, that's clearly stupid. Oh, my God, that's so, that's system one kicking in, right? And again, like cognitive shortcuts, sometimes you need it, right? But system two really allows us to have a more nuanced response to things. And so generally speaking, I'd say, how do you do it? Well, try and, if something triggers you, recognize it's triggering you and change the website, go for a walk, do something different, but then come back to it later when you're calmer and engage from a calm perspective. Don't shout, you know, just talk. And practically there's a, a client of mine who I'm very proud of at the moment, who's a very senior straight white guy in tech who's been on a journey. And uh he he did an audit of his Twitter followers recently and he got it down to gender balanced so he is following an equal amount of men and women. Um, now that's one small example, right? I mean, that's cool. It, but it's, it's cool, right? Because it's like tech is massively male dominated, right? And, it, and here's a guy who's actively seeking out female voices in tech who are saying, hey, everything's not okay, you know? And that's great, because he's doing something practical to try and Get this feedback. And then look, I'm sure he gets triggered by some stuff when he thinks he's really trying and he's getting bashed for not trying enough. But, you know, he can at least have this input and then, you know, consume it from a calm perspective at the right time.
0: I love that. I think that's really powerful. And it reminds me of one of the campaigns that came out a year or two ago with with some fellow Australians here on the speaking circuit these speakers were advocating for having women speakers on the lineup for any conference or event. And this particular group of male speakers said they will not speak at any event or conference on any panels unless there was gender diversity on the roster. And they made a complete stand for that. And it was public. And um, they advocate. So they look at the lineup for an event and they say, hey, I see that you've got all these people confirmed. And there's no women on it yet. So I won't agree to come and speak at your event until you do something about that, which is an interesting, and the event organizer kind of abashed by that because they hadn't seen it. <laughs> they just did not see it. It's something that I've become more sensitive to. So I'll go and check out a prospective client's website. And I'm looking for two things. One, how people focused are they? And do they actually have pictures of people on their website? And if they don't, like pictures of their team, say, for example, that gives me a clue of how they think about their people and they probably don't much is generally the case. It's interesting how websites can reflect that. And the second thing I'm looking for, if they do put up their people, what is the box of chocolates looking like? You know, is it all beige or, you know, is there dark chocolate and cherry ripes and whatever to see how their leadership is construed? But, you know, I challenged a leader recently about this. And for a number of years... They've had an all-male leadership team, and their culture reports year on year are saying not enough diversity in the organization, particularly at senior levels. So what are you doing about it? Oh, we're trying to promote the senior women here, and we are running these networking events for the women there. I'm like, that's not enough. Like, They weren't willing to change the way that they operated, which were biased towards men and biased against women with simple things like the long hours required to work, and that it required after hours, networking functions, and all that kind of stuff. And that excluded a lot of their high potential female candidates who couldn't because they were sole providers and so on. So even when they know there is a mandate and imperative and feedback to do it, they don't necessarily take action around that. I'm guessing you've come across this a lot. What is your response to that?
1: Um, Yeah, it's basically changed the system rather than put the work on the people who are already under most pressure, right? So it's a classic where a CEO or an executive, who may be well-intentioned, right, say, oh, no, no, you know, it's always taking care of that. Oh, no, no, we got Sarah doing that, you know. And they basically externalise it to someone else. Well, you can't outsource leadership, right? And you you can't, like, circumvent the system. Fundamentally, you know, I see some organisations doing diversity and inclusion, and they've got a diversity person who's junior in HR, and they're supposed to change the entire organization with zero resources, zero mandate, zero access to power. And then we wonder why anything, nothing ever happens. So you've got to change the system. And that's about people with power, people who control the levers, the decision-making structure and so forth, debiasing systems. And so that's what I say to CEOs and HRDs, and we talk to lots of them. Uh, our motto is speak truth to power,
0: right? Uh, I just love that saying, and I love that that's your motto. Yeah. That's great
1: um and it, it doesn't have to be aggressive or whatever it can be very nice but you've got to say to the CEO, look it's wonderful you're doing that 17th women's leadership program but have you thought of engaging the men you know because it's the guys that are, you know 80 of your senior appointments and if you don't tackle them then <laughs> keep going at the 20 percent isn't going to change the culture so it's things like that and i think for me if i have a conversation with ceo or and HRD. Again, I kind of put to them that there's, there's three ways of doing this. There's a kind of compliance paradigm, what I call Diversity 101, which is that at the end of the day, you do this stuff because you have to, right? There's laws. And that's fine, right? Without laws, you wouldn't have gay folks in the military or women's gender pay audits, you know, so it's fine. But it's never going to, you know, add massive value to your organization. You're doing it because you have to. There's a second paradigm that I call Diversity 2.0, which is really marketing. And that's where you do it because it makes you look good, right, it's reputation. It helps you win public sector contracts. Um, It helps reputation management, stakeholder management, the board are happy, you know. And that's great too, it's great to communicate and to praise and to celebrate, it's great. But often it's inauthentic. Adidas and Nike retweeted each other on Black Lives Matter. Brilliant marketing, amazing, go them, brilliant but they're run entirely by white people and their entire boards and exec teams are white. Um, so, yeah, no, it's insufficient. And the third paradigm, which is where I'd get to with the CEO, the speak truth to power stuff, would be, look, we got to look at the behavior of the majority, not just the minority, and we got to look at the systems. So you've got to embed inclusion in your decision-making. You make cars, make sure it's women on the team, or make sure we're like, thinking about gender and the design of the car. You know, you make vaccines. Make sure you've got racial diversity in the trials if you're doing diabetes stuff, right? Uh, you know, you're you're doing algorithms, right? Well, why do we have coding that still says blacklist and whitelist and master server and servant server, right? Like, let's tackle this stuff.
0: Really, that that's a thing. Yeah, <laughs> I had no idea. And
1: coders just think, oh, it's just normal that you have blacklist and whitelist. Literally, blacklist bad, whitelist good, right? It's like, wow, okay, where did that come about?
0: Couldn't be purple list or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So so that third area is what I'd say. And, and, and it's
1: interesting because a lot, some CEOs of HRDs aren't ready to hear it. But um, some absolutely are. They've just never connected the dots. Or the junior diversity person's never really had the mandate or the capability or the access or the you know, the entitlement to, to challenge them. And so basically it's it's about us using our privilege and power for good, right? and, and for actually trying to challenge HRDs and CEOs to say, look, you know, I'm not trying to beat you up here or ruin your business, right? Quite the opposite, but it starts with actually understanding the value, diversity, inclusion, the fact that it starts with you and your systems and the people and the majority and the power and all good things flow from there.
0: I think you're right. So leadership is an action and accountability has to be held at the top. And, It's not enough to put the pressure back on the people. We need to redesign the systems to be more inclusive. I love it. So my last question for you is coming back to focus on the individual leader. And as an individual leader who may or may not have positional power in the workplace, yet they can boost psychological safety for the people in their teams. How do you do that? What are some ways to boost that psychological safety so that people who are not in the majority, who do present as different can feel safe at work.
1: I think it's such a great point because psychological safety is so important for everyone to have, right? Some people just assume it or have already got it or don't even know where they've got it and others definitely don't. So caveat, the more power you got, the higher you got, the more responsibility you have, right? But to your point, even if you're quite a junior person, right, the stuff you can do, one of the things would be to try and be vulnerable as much as you possibly can And in sharing that vulnerability, elicit reciprocity from those around you, right? When a CEO says, you know, actually, I don't know what to do here, or I'm not sure, what do you think? You know, that's really interesting, rather than saying, this is the way we're doing it. Or sharing other vulnerabilities. Practically speaking, if you're chairing a team meeting, rotate the chair, right? Let someone else chair the meeting, right? And you kind of kick back and listen for a bit. Appoint a devil's advocate point someone whose job it is to disagree and challenge the decisions being made, right? And make sure that everyone gets a chance to introduce themselves at the start of the meeting. If we, everyone speaks even for five seconds at the start of the meeting, there will be a more equitable distribution of conversation in the meeting than had you not done that. So these are just simple things we can all do, right, to, to boost psychological safety, participation, inclusion, which help individuals come back to help us, help all of us.
0: That's great. Those are really practical, simple things that people can do to implement. That's fantastic. So, okay, maybe it is. (laughs) I thought that was my final question. This is my final, final question. What's the best piece of advice that you've been given?
1: Wow. So many, so many still to come. I, I think there's so many, but one piece of advice that I've been given, I think is keep to your true North, you know, keep to your moral compass. Because if you lose your true north or you lose your moral compass, what are we? Right. So of course, it's problematic me saying that because true norths are biased, right? <laughs> but we've accepted that we're all biased. But just kind of keeping a really, really grounded, calm, humble sense of what is good and letting that be a judge or a guide or a bellwether in situations of unfamiliarity or, or fear or just not knowing what to do. And certainly that's helped in the last few weeks and months that we've navigated COVID and Black Lives Matter and stuff. that You know, we speak truth to power. Sometimes that loses your client, but more often than not, it maintains a really good, deep, strong relationship over the years with people who appreciate the challenge and the camaraderie. So, yeah, um, keep your true north and um, be good.
0: Beautiful, Stephen. I think that was just lovely. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all these fantastic insights. And I'm excited because I believe in the power of changing people's worlds by changing the systems. I think that really is the critical intervention that we need to make. It starts with awareness. And when we start to dig deep and peel away the layers, we can really make a huge, huge catalyst for change. So thank you for sharing all your brilliant insights.
1: Thank you very much. Enjoy the conversation.
0: Well, I think in an interview like this on a topic like this, it's easy to feel powerless and not really knowing how we can address the big, wicked issue that diversity and inclusion presents us, racism presents us. And I think that Stephen gave us some really practical tips that so we can go ahead and apply immediately to help deal with some of this. First thing is doing an audit of your social media streams. You know, who are you listening to and reading from? And... Diversify that, you know, get as many different voices as possible that you can observe, learn, and explore. I think his other key tips about how to develop safety in a team for diverse groups, because just because you have diverse people at the table does not mean that everybody feels safe to participate. And the idea is that to be vulnerable and open hearted about what you as a leader think and know is really important to set the tone that it's okay not to have all the answers and that you encourage open-heartedness rotating the chair i think that was really fantastic so that everybody gets a chance to control manage or direct the conversation flow appointing devil's advocate i thought that was brilliant and also building a space where everybody can introduce themselves and get to know each other. And it was another book that I read called Biased, which talked about that. One of the main ways that we can combat racism and bias is getting to know individuals as human beings. So there you have it, (laughs) a great, wonderful interview with some really important things for us to consider as leaders. So go ahead go forth and prosper, as they say. And in the meantime, live well, lead well.